Well, good evening, Hallows Church. My name is Andrew. I serve as one of the pastors here, and I have the privilege of leading us through our study of the, of the scriptures tonight. And as we get started, I just want to share with you uh, one of my favorite scenes from C.S. Lewis's little book, uh, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Now, that's one of the seven books that make up the Chronicles of Narnia series, and there's a particular scene in there that I find deeply impactful. Uh, it shapes a lot of how I think about what Jesus is doing in my life right now. And it concerns one of the characters named Eustace. Now, when you first meet Eustace in the story, he's a fairly self-centered, self-absorbed, uh, obnoxious and annoying guy. Nobody likes him because he just consumes everything from everybody. He's not giving anything to anyone. And so he's very selfish, he's very self-centered, he's quite greedy. And there, after a series of events, Eustace comes across a pile of dragon's gold. And in his greed, he decides to take some of this gold for himself. And so he finds this gold armband in particular, and he grabbed it and he slid it on his arm. And the moment he did so, it turned this little boy into a dragon. And what you have in that moment is the way Eustace is on the inside began to show up on the outside, taking the form of this dragon. And of course, Eustace was scared. He didn't know what to do. He, he was frustrated. The, the armband squeezed tightly around his dragon foot, and he didn't know how to revert back and to go back to being a boy. Well, then soon after that, Eustace met Aslan. Now, Aslan is the king of Narnia, the mighty lion, and Aslan told Eustace to follow him up the mountainside where they will come to a nice, cool pool of water. And when he gets there, he tells Eustace, he says, look, if you, want to, um, if you want to return to being a boy, you are going to have to um, get undressed. You're going to have to be undressed, which this was something that confused Eustace because he was a dragon and dragons don't wear clothes. But he kept looking over at this cool pool of water and he wanted to dive in, believing the cool water would bring, bring relief to his, the pain and frustration he's experiencing as a dragon. But Aslan wouldn't let him just dive right in. He says, no, you've got to get undressed first. And he didn't know what to do because he had no clothes on. And then he figured, well, maybe he means uh, the way a snake sheds its skin, a dragon can maybe shed its scales. And so he began to try to pull the scales off of his body. And he's ripping it off. And he's making some progress on the first layer. But after he pulls off some of the scales, he then looks at his reflection in the pool and he sees that nothing has really changed. Because there is layer upon layer upon layer of scales and dragon skin that is covering him. And so after his futile efforts of trying to change back to being a boy, uh, Aslan looks at him and he says, No, Eustace, you don't understand. Eustace, you have to let me undress you. At that point, Eustace became afraid. He got scared because he knew Aslan was a lion. And as, as a lion, Aslan has strong, sharp claws. And he didn't want Aslan to use his cause to turn him back into a boy, so he was afraid. Nonetheless, he really wanted to change. And so Aslan reached out, and he took his big claw, and he began to peel away Eustace's skin. Now, the first tear was painfully deep, and Eustace believed in that moment that he was going to die. He wasn't sure he could survive the work of Aslan in his life. After a few moments, just this gnarled mess of dragon skin was cut away, and the lion then uh, looked at Eustace, and he kind of corralled Eustace to himself, and he, it, he picked up this dragon, and he threw Eustace into the water, and, and Eustace found relief. When he came up out of the water, he had returned back to being a human boy. 
It's a remarkable picture of transformation. It's a remarkable picture of life change. And it's actually a scene that some of you may be familiar with. Uh, It's one scene from that book that is quite familiar to many people who read those types of stories. And but it is sometimes, when that scene is talked about, it is, we sometimes give the impression that from that day forward, Eustace was forever changed. That after coming under the claws of Aslan, then he would suddenly become a completely different boy, never to return back to the self-centered, greedy, and obnoxious kid he was before then. But listen to what C.S. Lewis says about Eustace in kind of a summary statement after that moment. He says this. He writes, it would be nice and fairly nearly true to say that from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. But to be strictly accurate, he began, to be, he, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses, and there were still many days when he could be very tiresome. But, here's the kicker, but the cure had begun. I love that phrase. The cure had begun after Eustace had his encounter with Aslan. Now, in that moment on the mountainside, he experienced real change. Aslan did a real deep work of change in Eustace's life. But the change he experienced in that moment wasn't a completed change. It wasn't a change that entirely completed itself in Eustace's young life. Now, when you become a Christian, or becoming a Christian is a lot like that. When you have an encounter with Jesus and Jesus begins to, and you come to believe that Jesus is the Savior and you surrender and you submit your life to Christ, you have an encounter with him. Becoming a Christian is a lot like that. When you meet Jesus, he produces a real and deep change in you. When you put your faith in Christ, he works a deep, lasting change down in your heart. But when you meet Jesus and he begins to change you in that moment, that change isn't completed upon that first encounter. You are not completely changed in a practical sense the moment you become a Christian. And if you've been a Christian for any number of days or months or years, you know this to be true. And maybe it's one of the things that has frustrated you about becoming a Christian because you're a Christian now and yet you still have some struggles in your life and you're wondering, well, how can this be? If Jesus changes lives and if I believe the gospel and then how can I continue to struggle with this? Or how can I continue to struggle with that? And and you might find yourself frustrated and discouraged. You might be even tempted to disregard your whole conversion. You might be tempted to say, well, this whole thing is, is false. And that may be because you are under the impression that the change Jesus works in your life upon meeting him is a complete change. But what I want you to know today is that the change Jesus works in your life when you become a Christian is a real change. And what Jesus does when he works in your life is he puts you in a position to make a lot of progress over the rest of your days. You step into a relationship with Christ that's going to change you, yes, in the moment in which it begins. But it is going to change you in ever-increasing and ever-noticeable ways over the long haul of your life in this world. This is what Christianity is all about. When you become a Christian, you are positioned to make progress for the long haul. Jesus wants to change our lives. Now, I know whenever I use a word like change, and I say that Jesus changes us in real ways, and over the course of our life, he's still changing us. I know that's kind of a hard 
word for us to hear today because we don't really believe in change. If we're going to take a poll of people in the city of Seattle on change, I suspect that most people is going to tell us that change is unnecessary. They're either going to say it's unnecessary or they're going to say it's impossible. And so change isn't really something that we believe in today. We don't think people can change or we don't think people need to change. You see, there's a philosophy, there's a cultural assumption that's kind of, that, that we just swim in today. And it's this idea that is equals ought. Meaning what is, is what is, is what ought to be. And so instead of trying to, if you have desires, if you have inclinations, if you have predispositions, if you have struggles, if, if what is in your life right now has been something a part of you since birth, then instead of trying to push back against that and trying to change from that, instead just embrace it because what is is what ought to be. And so we live in a culture that doesn't promote change, that doesn't believe it's possible, and vast majority of people are becoming to believe that it's even unnecessary. This was perhaps articulated most clearly by one of our culture's most influential theologians, Lady Gaga, back... <laughs> Back in 2011, you know, she communicated this theology in a song called Born This Way. And what she communicates is that what is, is what ought to be. Change ultimately isn't necessary. Just embrace what is. Don't seek anything different. And if anybody tells you to seek anything different, if they promote change, well, then that's unnecessary. Listen to what she says in this song, Born This Way. She writes just a stretch of the song. She says, my mama told me when I was young, we are all born superstars. She rolled my hair and put my lipstick on in the glass of her bourgeois. Now, I don't know if I said that correctly because I don't have one of those. Uh, but in the glass of her bourgeois, uh, this conversation goes down. There's nothing wrong with loving who you are, she said. Because he, referring to God, made you perfect. So hold your head up, girl, and you'll go far. Listen to me when I say I'm beautiful in my way because God makes no mistakes. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. Don't hide yourself in regret. Just love yourself and you're set. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. Do you hear the philosophy behind it? What is is what ought to be. Now, this is a common cultural assumption. Many people, I think, believe this and embrace this. Maybe your heart embraces this philosophy, and it sounds good at first. In fact, one of the things with, when it comes to uh, distorted worldviews or errant theologies, what makes them distorted and what makes them errant isn't necessarily that they are saying something clearly and explicitly false. What makes them so dangerous and what makes them so hard to deal with is that they sound right. They sound true. In other words, errant theology isn't errant because it's just blatantly false. It's errant usually because it is partially false. Oftentimes, people say what is partially true in these types of statements. And now there are things that she says in that song that we would agree with, right? We would agree that God doesn't make mistakes, that if you're a human being alive today, you are not a mistake. 
We believe that every human being is created in the image of God and God makes no mistakes. Anytime any person is born into this world, there is so much redemptive potential in that person's life. We believe and affirm that, but what we don't agree with is that what is, is what ought to be. And the reason for that is because what's missing in the song? She talks about creation, but what does she overlook? Well, she overlooks the reality of a fall. She overlooks the reality of sin in the world. And that's what we can't miss, right? The reason why change is needed is because we are all fallen. The reason why change is needed is because we've all been defiled and the image of God has been distorted in us as a result of sin. This is why change has to happen. This is why change isn't something that we view as an impossibility and it's not something that we view as unnecessary. No, as Christians, we believe change is deeply, deeply necessary. And the reason why we believe this is because Jesus believed this. Jesus talked about the necessity of change over and over and over again in the Gospels. There was one day when a man walked up to him at night. His name was Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a rich, young, influential, positive, upstanding, reputable citizen in his society. He walks up to Jesus and he says, hey, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus looks at this man and, and he tells him, well, or you would think if Jesus believed that what is is what ought to be, he would have looked at him and would have said, well, there's nothing you need to do. There's no changes that need to be made. You're a good man, you're a religious man, you're a wealthy man, you're a respected man, people like you. There's no change needed. There's nothing you need to do. But when Jesus has this conversation, he doesn't say that. Instead, he looks at the man. Instead of saying, well, what is is what ought to be. You're fine. Don't worry about it. No, he says, I tell you this. Unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. Unless you experience change in the deepest part of who you are, you will not experience God's redemptive reign and God's redemptive rule. What is he saying in that moment? He's saying change is absolutely necessary. And he's also saying that change is possible because there is a work that the Holy Spirit does in a person that produces this change that causes a heart to come alive so that we are born again so that, to believe in Jesus, to trust in Jesus. And so the reason why we believe change is needed is because Jesus taught that change was needed. Now, one of the reasons why, one of, one of the words, I'm, I'm going to kind of give you, um, we're going to talk in some theological terms here in a moment, and these are words that I think, this is a particular word that every Christian kind of needs in their database, when we talk about change and transformation, growing as a Christian, maturing in our faith, we're talking about a concept known as sanctification. Now, that's the big theological word. It's the idea of being set apart, of being transformed, of being made holy, of being made pure. Sanctification is what we're talking about. Now, it's kind of a confusing concept because when you read through the New Testament, sometimes you get whiplash. There are some verses that speak of sanctification and as if it has already happened. And it's, you read these verses and you think, okay, well, I am already sanctified. But then you read other passages of Scripture and it suggests that sanctification hasn't fully completed itself yet, that there's still more work of sanctification being done, more change taking place. I'll give you an example. There's one passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that speaks to this dynamic. If, uh, you don't have to turn there. We'll, pass, we'll flash up part of it on the screen here in a moment. 
But listen to, listen to how sanctification is talked about here. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, Paul is writing to a new generation of Christians, a young generation of Christians in a city known as Corinth. And this is what he says. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That is, don't you know those who remain unrepentant, who resist the gospel, the, those who do not believe change is needed, they are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But then notice what he says in verse 11. And some of you used to be like that. He's saying some of you used to be like that. That was your identity before you met Jesus. But something changed, right? The gospel took root in their hearts. Change started to produce. But then he goes on and he says, but you were washed. Here it is. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. So he's saying, look, you were sanctified. You were set apart. You were changed. Now, you might read that and think, okay, I, I've been sanctified. There's nothing left to be done, right? That's who I used to be. This is who I am now. I've been sanctified. and I'm just going to live my Christian life as if that is true in every moment of every day. And so you go about your days, but then all of a sudden, you look at the shelf and you see that bottle sitting there. And you're like a moth to the flame, attracted to it. Or you see a person you used to hook up with and when they... When you're walking down the street and you think to yourself, well, you know, that, uh, there's something in me that still kind of goes after that. And, and all of a sudden, this whole idea of you were sanctified is called under, into question. And you begin to wonder, well, is this true of me? So here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Jesus is talking, or Paul is writing as though we are already sanctified. But then there are other passages that speak of sanctification as a process. That we are being changed, we are being sanctified over the course of time. One example would be in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. You can look up at the screen at this one. Where John, the same writer of our gospel, is talking to Christians. And listen to what he's saying about those who are struggling. And he uses the language of sanctification. Listen. He says, if we confess our sins, he, that is God, is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. And here it is, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Cleanse, sanctify, same family, same word group. And he's saying God is faithful and just to cleanse us. That is to sanctify us, to change us, and it's in the present tense. So he's saying if you're still struggling, there, there's a way for you to experience more cleansing. There's a way for you to experience more change. He's essentially affirming that there are two types of sanctification. There is what we're going to call definitive sanctification in the life of the believer, and then there's something called a dynamic sanctification. And so you ask yourself, okay, well, which one is right? Have I been sanctified or am I being sanctified? And the answer to that question is yes. That's the answer to the question. You see, good gospel theology, what the Bible teaches about everything is that you and I should avoid extremes at all costs. The gospel calls us to live in the middle of the room. And so we don't take one passage and run into one corner with it, neglecting all the other passages of Scripture. If we do that with sanctification, we're going to become cocky. We're going to outpunt our coverage when it relates to the, the practical holiness and the practical righteousness of our lives. We're going to become very proud. 
We're going to stop looking down on people who are struggling. We're not going to be very compassionate towards those who are still working through uh, struggles that maybe you don't have at this point in time in your life. And you're just going to huddle up in a corner of self-righteousness if you move in that direction. But at the same time, we're not going to run to the other side of the room and huddle up here and, and live a defeated Christianity thinking, okay, well, change is impossible. Jesus isn't really changing me. I might even just abandon this whole gospel Christianity thing because it doesn't seem to be working practically for me right now. No, if you're a gospel-believing, Jesus-following person of faith, you don't live over here a life of defeat. You don't live over here of a life of exaggerated victory. What you do is you live right here in the middle of the room a life of complete dependence upon the work Jesus is still doing in you. You recognize that he is the vine, you are the branches, and that apart from him, you can do nothing. So you need constant and consistent dependence upon Christ if change and transformation is going to continue to bloom and to blossom in your life. This is what Jesus is getting after here in John chapter 15. If you were here last week, you know we started kind of a summer stroll through about 17 verses of John chapter 15. We're just going to take the rest of the summer to walk slowly through this passage. And the reason for that is because this passage zeroes in on kind of the essence of Christianity. Christianity one-on-one, this is what Christianity is all about. And if you remember from last week, we said Christianity isn't about you trying to live for Jesus. We said it's about you learning to live in Christ. It's about you living in Christ, not for Christ. And there's a world of difference between the two. And this is exactly what Jesus is encouraging here in these verses. As he talks about the essence of Christianity, he's saying, look, I want you to be in me. And I want you to know that I'm in you via my Holy Spirit. And together, we're going to journey through this world. And together, you are going to become a fruitful, fruitful follower. So listen to what he says in verse 3. First, Jesus talks about what's called definitive sanctification. He says in verse 3, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. That's definitive sanctification. He's talking to his disciples saying, you are already clean. You are already sanctified. You are already pure. You are already holy. And he says, this is why. Because of the word I have spoken to you. Now, what word is he talking about? Well, the first time the word word is used outside of John chapter 1 is found in John chapter 5 verse 24. Listen to what is said there. He says, truly, I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment but has passed from death to life. I think he's talking about the initial word the disciples heard when he said, hey, follow me. Come find life in me. So the word that Jesus is talking about in verse 3 is his calling, his grace, his gospel that moved them, that sanctified them, that set them apart from living a life of death, and all of a sudden they're now finding life in him. This is definitive sanctification. This is what every Christian experiences in some way, shape, or form when they meet Jesus. Sometimes this moment of definitive sanctification, of being set apart from death to find life in Jesus, it happens in an instant. I think of Pastor Jeff up at our North Expression where he met Jesus in an instant and, and he, his life was changed and he found faith in Christ in a moment in his kitchen, in his, in his home. And, and it was quite miraculous. It was quite dramatic. And I think about his story, but I also think about stories like C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, who heard this word from Jesus 
a lot of different times. He had lots of conversations with lots of different people. And over the course of many gospel contacts, eventually C.S. Lewis found himself believing. And it was a very subtle, it was a very quiet conversion. C.S. Lewis would say, you know, I got in my car to go to the zoo. And when I got in my car, I wasn't believing. But by the time I got to the zoo and I got out, I was believing. Something changed from point A to point B. This is definitive sanctification. It is when Jesus sets you apart for himself. It's when Jesus calls you from death to life. That's definitive set-apartness. And this is what every Christian experiences, but we experience it, of course, in different, in different ways. You might illustrate it this way. Definitive sanctification is like walking into a dark, dark room and flipping on a light switch. At one time, you couldn't see anything. But in the very next moment, you could see everything. You could see how the room was designed. You could see how things could function. This is what happens when you become a Christian, when you were born again, so to speak. Jesus steps in and he turns the light switch on in your soul so that suddenly you're starting to see things according to God's design. You're starting to see things according to what Jesus is about. You begin to trust in Jesus and believe in Jesus because that change is being worked and wrought in you. That's definitive sanctification. That's being set apart for a different kind of life. That's finding yourself in Christ, according to John 15. Now, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. I'll give you one more uh, verse that speaks to this dynamic. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. Listen to what he says. He says, it is from him, that is, it is from God, that you were in Christ Jesus. That's where you were located. That's where you are now found. You were in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us. Get this, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. What's he saying? He's saying Jesus is your sanctification. Definitive sanctification is about being in Christ so that being in him, suddenly everything changes. God looks at your life and he doesn't just see you. He looks at your life and he sees you clothed in the holiness and the sanctification of Christ because Jesus becomes that for you. That's definitive sanctification. That is a life change that cannot be reversed. It cannot be revoked. Now, the only other time that this word clean shows up in John's gospel is a couple of chapters earlier in John chapter 13 when Jesus is washing the feet of his disciples. And listen to what he's, he's, he's teaching his disciples some incredible truths. And listen to what he says, John 13 verse 10. Peter here is resisting being cleaned by Jesus and having his feet washed. And listen to what he says. He says, one who is bathed doesn't need to wash anything except his feet. But he is completely clean. You are clean. There it is again. You are clean. Definitive sanctification. He's talking to his disciples. You are clean. He does go on to say, but not all of you. And that's a reference to Judas. Because you know Judas wasn't a genuine follower of Jesus. And so he wasn't clean. But the other disciples who were genuinely grafted into Christ, they were clean. And so he speaks of definitive, definitive sanctification there. But what's interesting is that though he declares them clean, he still washes their feet. And this is when we begin to shift from definitive sanctification to what's called dynamic sanctification. In that moment, Jesus says, you're already clean, but I still need to wash your feet. Well, there's a sense in which we as Christians are already declared clean by Jesus. But there's a sense in which Jesus is still cleaning us. This is one of the beauties of the Christian life, is that you and I are living our lives constantly being washed and cleansed and served by Jesus. That's dynamic sanctification. That is a constant process that we are undergoing where Jesus is stooping to serve us in a myriad of ways so that we can be made practically 
clean, so that we can walk in the life that we have been saved for. It's a beautiful thing to, to experience what's called dynamic sanctification, which is what Jesus talks about next in verse 4. He says, remain in me and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. He's saying, okay, now that you're in me, you need to remain in me. Now that you're in me, we need to hang together so that you can produce fruit. So if we want to say that definitive sanctification is like turning on a light switch, dynamic sanctification is like watching a sunrise. Sunrises aren't instant. Sunrises are gradual. They take time. You step outside and you just watch the sun appear to rise on the horizon until it reaches its peak. Well, that's the trajectory of the Christian life. This dynamic sanctification that takes place over time where Jesus continues to clean you, he continues to change you, he continues to produce his life within you, that's what happens in this process. And here in John chapter 15, there are really kind of two ways in which uh, we experience dynamic sanctification, this work of life change that is happening in all of us. And the first one we mentioned last week, and it's mentioned earlier in verse 2, and it's the idea of the Father's devoted discipline. We said last week that the father is the gardener and the gardener is pruning every branch that is producing fruit so that it can produce more fruit. The, the gardener is at work in our lives to say, look, you are bearing fruit, but I want you to bear more fruit, so I'm going to prune you. And we said last week that nobody likes that. Nobody likes to be clipped. Nobody likes to be cut. But the father's devoted to disciplining us so that we can be as fruitful as possible. And what's amazing about this is that the father is more devoted to your fruitfulness than you are. He is far more devoted to you becoming more like Christ than you yourself ever will be. And he has committed himself to working in your life in such a way, even if it's a hard way, to make you fruitful. And there are two kinds of discipline that the father engages in when he relates to his children. One type of discipline is called corrective discipline. Corrective discipline is when the father allows you to experience the consequences of your foolish choices. When you are making terrible choice after terrible choice after terrible choice, and the Father allows you to experience the consequences, to reap what you have sown, so to speak. This corrective discipline is what he engages in so that you can learn, so that you can grow. Every parent knows this. When you exercise corrective discipline over your kids, it's not because you hate them. It's not because you don't want what's best for them. You exercise corrective discipline because you don't want weeds to grow up in their lives. God is a gardener who wants to produce much fruit. Your life is his garden. It's not his yard. Now, I am a yard guy. A yard is just an open field of grass. I can just grab a lawnmower and just cut everything. You don't have to pay attention to any of the details. You don't have to do anything neat. But a garden, you have to pay attention to everything. A garden, you have to be sure, okay, is this a weed or is this a flower? A garden, you have to get involved in what's happening to cultivate it, to nurture it so that things can grow. Well, God views your life as his garden, not his yard. He's not just running you over with a lawnmower. No, he is tenderly involved in your life to clip you, to prune you, to pull weeds out of you so that more fruit and more life can grow. And one of the ways that he does this is through what's called corrective discipline. But if you were in Christ, here's what I want you to understand. God's corrective discipline should not be interpreted as his condemnation of you. We know in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, that there is no condemnation for anyone who are in Christ. Those who are grafted to the true vine, you will never know condemnation, but you can know consequences for your foolish choices. The Father hasn't promised to deliver you from your 
foolish decisions. But he has promised to work through your foolish decisions to help you grow, to help you mature, to help more fruit to come. So there's corrective discipline on one hand, but on the other hand, there's something called perfecting discipline. Now, perfecting discipline is when the Father is at work in our lives to make fruit grow, and he's doing things in our lives that, aren't, that may be hard, but they cannot be traced back to any specific sin or any specific foolish decision that we have made. He takes kind of the raw ingredients of a fallen world and even the bitter ingredients, and he works them together so that we can grow. I'll give you one passage, James chapter 1, verse 2. James chapter 1. Consider it great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, that is hardships, difficulties, this may be interpreted as the perfecting discipline of the Lord. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect. Now, I love that phrase. Because when it comes to this type of discipline, when we're going through a trial that the Lord may want to use so uh, we might become fruitful, the word we need to have in our minds in that moment isn't enjoyment. The word we need to have in our minds is endurance. He says, let endurance have its full effect. Let it run its course in your life. So that, he goes on, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing, so that you can be fruitful. So he says, let endurance have its full effect. Let it run its course. See, what happens when God's perfecting discipline, when trials and difficulties and challenges come, we have a tendency to want to pull back from drawing life from the, line, from the vine and start drawing life from all types of other sources. We don't stick in it with Christ. We pull back from Christ and we look for comfort, we look for solace, we look for help and relief in some other source. We turn our attention to the bottle. We turn our attention to pornography. We turn our attention to escape via Netflix binges and all these types of things to find life and solace and refuge in the midst of our trial. And here we're being told, no, you need to let endurance have its full effect. Don't pull back from the true vine. Press into the true vine. Draw your life from Christ. Now, this past week, I didn't like reading James chapter 1, verse 2. This past week, I didn't like reading about the Father's perfecting discipline or correcting discipline or any of that because more my identity was stolen. Now, I should be flattered, but I'm not, you know, that somebody wants to be me or, you know, imitate me in this world. And so they take my identity and they're running with it. And though I should be flattered, I'm more frustrated because this person is making life very inconvenient. So I've had to spend a lot of hours this past week trying to correct all that this person is trying to wreck and trying to mess up in my life in this world. And, and I'm going through this, and I'm stressed, I'm frustrated, I'm, I'm growing angry and bitter, and I find the Holy Spirit just whispering, just whispering in my soul. Consider it pure joy that you face trials of various kinds. Then go, he goes on to say, let endurance have its full effect so that you can be made mature, so that you can be completed, so that you won't lack nothing. Good can come through the trial you were going through. And then he would go on, and the spirit would just whisper, hey, you know, ultimately your identity hasn't been stolen. Ultimately your identity hasn't been hijacked. Your identity isn't attached to a social security number. Your identity is found in Christ. So rest in Christ. Nobody can take that. Nobody can touch that. Nobody can distort that. And as I've been meditating upon that this week, I find the Spirit just giving me great peace, giving me joy even in the midst of that 
frustrating experience. This is kind of how that works. We experience a trial and we let endurance to have its full effect. This means that whatever emotions you are feeling when you're suffering or struggling or undergoing a trial, don't try to short-circuit that emotion. Let that endurance have its full effect. Take your anger, run to Jesus. Take your frustration, run to Jesus. Take your discontent, run to Jesus. Don't try to change it. Don't try to adjust it. Don't try to pull the brakes on it. No, you let it. Let endurance have its full effect. When you are undergoing the perfecting discipline of the Lord, press into Christ with everything, with everything that is in you. Don't pull back. Don't try to hide. Don't try to recalibrate. Don't try to think, well, this emotion is unbecoming of a person who's following Jesus and their suffering should not be rejoicing. Well, you'll get there eventually. But you may not be there yet. And so let endurance have its full effect in you as you are undergoing trials, as you are experiencing discipline. This is how the Lord begins to work out change in us. This is part of the dynamic sanctification that we are all experiencing. The sun is rising in our soul, and it rises through the Father's devoted discipline. But then lastly, it comes through the disciples' holy habits. Holy habits the holy habits that you and I cultivate, nurture, that you and I learn to practice as a result of our life in Christ. This is found here where Jesus is talking about remain in me and I in you. You drop down to verse 7 and he tells us what him remaining in us consists of. He says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you. So he brings us to the word. There's some connection between remaining in Christ and his words remaining in us. He says something very similar a couple of chapters earlier. John chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. Later on in John 17, 17, sanctify them according to truth. Your word is truth. So there's a holy habit that you and I cultivate that concerns the word. That concerns being people who engage the scriptures, who study the scriptures, who listen to Jesus. This is where our abiding happens. This is where dynamic sanctification takes place. Paul would say something very similar in Ephesians chapter 5 where he talks about the church. And he says, you know, Jesus, he's washing the church through the water of what? The water of his word. So if you're going to grow, if you're going to mature, if you're going to engage in dynamic sanctification... The word has to be, has to be ground zero for your relationship with Christ. You have to be someone who's taking the word in, who's thinking the word through, who's trying to turn the word out in your life. Because the word is how God talks to you. The word is how God says, hey, this isn't right in your life. It needs to, you need to give some attention to this. The word is how God says you need to stop what you're doing right there and start doing this over here. The word is where you hear God's affirmation of you and his love for you and his devotion to you, the word is where you hear the voice of God. So we cultivate a holy habit of listening by engaging the word. But then there's one other dynamic in verse 7. Not only does he talk about the word there, he also talks about prayer. He says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. So he moves from the word to prayer. And these are the two holy habits that we, don't, that we want operating in our lives. The word and prayer. The word and prayer. Basically what this boils down to is communication. Every intimate relationship that is truly intimate hence centers on communication. Kim and I are the most intimate in our marriage when we are communicating. 
when communication breaks down, intimacy is lacking. Well, in your relationship with God, intimacy is going to be fueled by the communication that's taking place. And it is through the word where God communicates. It's through the word where God speaks the clearest. It's through the word where God speaks with the most authority. It's through the word where God speaks with the most impact and effect. So you want to listen to the word, but then it's in prayer where you talk to him, right? In the word, God speaks to you. In prayer, you speak to him. Communication takes place and intimacy is nurtured. And when you're fostering an intimate relationship with God, your life will begin to change. Relationships change people. And your relationship with Christ, the more you press into Christ, that relationship is going to affect you. It's going to change you. You're going to find yourself becoming like Christ because you are engaging in these holy, these holy habits. Now, there's a habit, one definition of a habit. A habit is an action you do frequently and automatically in response to, get this, in response to your environment. A habit is something you do frequently and automatically in response to your environment. Well, where is your environment? Where are you located, Christian? Well, you are located in Christ. Where are you located, Christian? You are located in the true vine. And so you cultivate holy habits, engaging the word and engaging prayer in response to your environment, in response to the fact that you were in Christ. And so now you engage these holy habits, not because you have to. You engage these holy habits because you want to, and you recognize that as you do so, change is coming. As you do so, growth is occurring. As you do so, the sun is rising in your soul, and the glory of Christ is filling out your life in every conceivable direction. And so in response to the fact that you are in Christ, you want to nurture holy habits. You want to press into this, to this relationship. And I'll end with one story. In January 2008, there was a story made the rounds about a 15-year-old girl named Demi Lee Brennan. Now, Brennan's name is, maybe you've heard of her, maybe you haven't, but she's famous because she became the world's first known transplant patient to change blood types. She experienced a, a transplant, and she moved from O negative to O positive. She actually took on the immune system of the organ that was given to her. Now, at first, when the doctors measured this, they thought it was a fluke. They thought it was a mistake, and because it's never been done before, and they believed it couldn't happen. Turns out she's a one in six billion case. A one in six billion miracle is what the doctors called her. What happened was the blood stem cells in Brennan's new liver, that was the problematic organ in her body. That was the organ that was going to kill her, so she needed a new one. So she got a new liver, and the blood stem cells invaded her bone marrow. And as it invaded her bone marrow, it began to take over her entire immune system and so that she now has an entirely different kind of blood. She has blood flowing through her veins that's going to lead to her life. It's not going to lead to her death. She said in 2008 interview, it's like I've been given a second chance at life. As this 15-year-old girl experienced such a change that's going to cause her to be able to grow up. She's now going to be able to get taller. She was, at that point, was going to be able to grow and experience more life in this world. She was positioned after that miracle to make a lot of progress, to experience a lot of life. Well, this is exactly what happens for the Christian. When Jesus begins to work in your life and he calls you to come alive and he puts his spirit within you, he puts you in position to make a lot of progress. He puts you in a position to grow. He puts you in position to change. 
He's got you prime and ready to become a fruitful man and a fruitful woman in this world for his glory. So engage the process. Be patient with the process. Don't push back from the process. Just press in knowing that you are positioned to progress in this life as you journey with Jesus. Let's pray.